Can someone be saved if they refuse to forgive? Did you hear the question? Can someone be saved if they refuse to forgive? If a, in other words, if a person claims to be a Christian, yet harbors a grudge or remains embittered against another individual, thinking, I'll never forgive them. Will such a person go to heaven when they die? See, the notion of forgiveness is easy to accept on paper. I mean, especially when you're in church. We're all sitting here and you're kind of expecting you're going to hear the buzzword forgiveness. And no one's going to disagree with that. Particularly when it comes to God's forgiveness. Yet, when it comes to us and forgiving others, it becomes quite a struggle, does it not? Do we have to forgive everyone for every offense? What if the offender is not sorry? What if there is a history of mistreatment? Should we forgive those who humiliate us and inflict physical or emotional pain on us? What about lesser offenses? Acts of thoughtlessness, small betrayals, and jokes that amuse no one except the person offending us. Surely everybody in this room can think of a time when someone has said something that makes your pulse rise, where someone has done something that offended you, be that yesterday or 10 years ago, be that in the kitchen or in the athletic field, be that in your lounge room or the boardroom at work. We all have been offended at different times by people who have either unintentionally or intentionally sinned against us. But the reality is, I don't know if you felt this, sometimes it's harder to forgive small offenses, especially if they come from, say, within your own close network of friends or family or even the church. I mean, when non-Christians, when pagans sin against us, well, we kind of half expect it. Uh, but when a fellow believer sins against you, well, that stings, that hurts. They should know better. Friend, that's exactly why Jesus, when he addresses the church in Matthew 18, centers on this idea of forgiveness. And his driving point throughout the rest of this chapter is that forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people, in turn, forgive. You, you know, Jesus could have simply stated that outright. Forgiven people forgive. But what does he do to drive home this truth he tells a story, a, a parable about a servant or slave who's unable to pay back a loan, a massive loan to his master. 
And the master, quite unexpectedly, decides to cancel the loan. But then the same guy fails to treat another as he's been treated. He demands immediate repayment from another slave. And when the headmaster hears this, he revokes his kindness and puts that wicked servant in prison until he can somehow arrange to have the original debt repaid. It's a remarkable parable that consists of three scenes. And we're going to pivot on each scene and each character, as it were, to set up our three points for today's sermon. First point is about free forgiveness. And that's what we see from the headmaster to this indebted servant. Free forgiveness. That's in verses 23 through 27. The second is flouted forgiveness. It's not a word we hear very often. Flouted, right? You know what that means? It means to openly disregard, to sort of scoff at something. And that's in verses 28 through 30. And finally, forfeited forgiveness. And that's in verse 31 through 35. Forgive me for my alliteration. I'm a preacher. That's what we do. Free forgiveness, flouted forgiveness, forfeited forgiveness. And may God bless the preaching of his word as we look to him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we need now uh, our eyes opened. Lord, we need by your spirit our hearts awakened. So, Lord, would you do nothing short of a miracle like you did last week and the week before? Speak to us, O Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, as we open up here to Matthew's gospel, it's, it's helpful to situate the context. Jesus has just been preaching on or teaching his disciples about church discipline and this really simple thing called excommunication. I'm joking, right? Uh, remember he said, if your brother sins against you, do such and such. Do you remember that from last week? And Dan did a fantastic job unpacking that for us. Well, okay, if you're the disciples, naturally you're thinking, right, okay, what about this? And, and if my brother sins against me, which is a fellow believer, um, sins against me like twice or how, like, how, like how, how many times should I, like, is this going to go on until you return, Lord, till the cows come home? Like, naturally the, the disciples are thinking these things, right? And so what they do, yeah, thanks, Nige. There you go, in case you get lost. <laughs> Nige got, has your back. And so Peter, who represents the group, he kind of, I bet you Peter, you ever been in a group where um, someone, in, or maybe in a classroom, and someone raises their hand and they, and they say uh, uh, to the teacher, I'm just curious about this, and you're thinking, I'm so glad you asked it because I was too embarrassed, but, but everyone in the room was sort of thinking it. That's kind of what Peter does. He approaches Jesus. He says, you know, Jesus has gone on this whole thing when your brother sins against you, yada, yada, yada. And then he goes, well, okay. Um, how often, like what's the limit of the forgiveness here that I'm supposed to offer, right? And it's an, it's an interesting question. Have a look at what, what he asks here in verse 21, if you have your Bible there. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, 
Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Fascinating question. Uh, Many of the rabbis back then had sort of a three strikes you're out standard. In other words, you could limit your forgiveness like Joel, all right, last month, and yesterday, two strikes, three, you're out, right? Probably sounds like not a bad gig, right? You're like, I know people that have done a lot more than three. But that's what the rabbis have. So it could be that Peter being aware of that is feeling rather smug and kind of wants to um, maybe impress the rather Jesus and kind of ups the ante by doubling it, actually going all the way to seven. That, that could be the case. Or perhaps he's on to something. You might know that seven is the number of completion or perfection. And so he's wondering if this sevenfold perfect forgiveness is required. We're not sure what's behind Peter's question. What's the motive behind his question? What we do see is Jesus' shocking reply to the question, and that's in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, depending on your Bible, you might have actually a little footnote there. And if you have your specs on, you can notice that some, because the wording is quite ambiguous here, it, it might read 77 times, but you could also translate this expression 70 times seven. Uh, the King James rendered it that way. But here's the deal. Whatever translation you have, the point remains the same. It's describing unlimited forgiveness. You see, the Bible, in the Bible, seven and multiples of seven mean what? It, you see, it, it's, it's about completeness, right? It, in other words, it's not how many times, it's how completely you forgive Peter. You, you with me there? It's not going, oh, okay, uh, look, once you've, I'm sort of got a little black book here, and all right, Dan, you're, you're like, you know, I've been working with you for five years, so you're at least up to like 38, 39, you know, and either once you hit 76 or, 70, or 70, 78, I guess, you're out, or at best, 490, right? 70 times seven, so 491, that's it, give me a bat, and it's, or whatever, right? I'm not going to hit him with a bat, but, you know, so um, you're like, wow, you've been thinking about that? No, all right? You get the point, though? It's not as if there's, there's not a number there where you're like, because even at best, 490, I bet you could think of people that's sinned against you probably 491 times. Maybe you've sinned against people 491 times. Maybe you sinned against people 78 times. You get the point. It's not about the numerical value. Seven there, seven times seven, the, it's adding up. Remember, Matthew's already done this in the genealogy. 14, 14, 14. Remember, all the way back to the genealogy. There, he's, he has a penchant of numbers to add things up to sort of say, look, I'm, I'm showing, I'm, I'm making a point by dropping these numbers in. Remember the baskets that were collected after Jesus fed the 5,000? Seven basketfuls or 12, right? Perfection to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's no coincidence. And remember, Matthew's an accountant. The dude knows his math. The dude knows his numbers. And so there's, a, there's a, I think, an intentional 
uh, numbering, an uh, ambiguity, if you were, to where we're supposed to say, oh, well, seven times seven, 77, seven times, which one is it? It's completeness. Because unless you've forgiven someone completely, you haven't really forgiven them. The reality is you, some of you have kind of nursed a hurt for a long, long time. And that's not to deny that someone was treated you poorly, but you've nursed that hurt. And it, it's actually eating away at you. You see, it's, it's easy to hear this stuff in church. And here's the danger for everyone listening right now. It's easy to hear this stuff and go, yeah, 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 forgiveness, God's forgiveness, yeah, yeah, and I should forgive. And then you sort of have this moment here in church, but then you've got this little shady drawer, file cabinet in your life where you're like, I'm never going to forgive that person. And it's kind of like the old James Bond movie back in the late 90s where the villain had a bullet in his head, lodged in his head, right? The world is not enough is the James Bond movie. And, and, and the bullet, you know, he's, he's dying. And he, if he had the bullet removed, you know, he'd die. But, but in, in a way, because the bullet's in there, because of his hatred and, and his unforgiveness, he's actually growing quite strong. But it's only a matter of time until eventually that bullet kills him. In the same way, you might feel like you're, you're, you're not forgiving people. It, it's kind of giving you strength. It's giving you a bit of a robust, a bit of kind of a, a, a hard skin because you're not going to get hurt by the next person. But it's killing you, friend. It's killing you. It's killing your joy in Christ. And in the end, it'll destroy you. So what Jesus says we're to forgive an unlimited number of times. But what does that look like? Well, it's, it's like a man, a king, actually. And one day this king decides, you know, I think it's the right time to get all the accounts of my servants sorted. And if you're royalty, no doubt you have accountants to oversee such financial matters. But as he began his reckoning, it soon discovered that one of his servants owes an astronomical amount, 10,000 talents. To put this in perspective, one talent equaled 20 years wages for a common laborer. Okay, so there's not heaps of doctors or lawyers in here. Most of us are just common laborers. So 20 years of your wage, one talent. You with me? This guy owes 10,000 talents, equaling to something like billions, if not trillions of dollars. It's an unpayable amount, really. All that to say, can you imagine how cross this master is when he finds out the bottom line figure of what this bloke owes him. First of all, I mean, you're kind of questioning, like, how did he even get to that place? But, but this is going to probably sink this master as well. So how, how did we get here? What, like, and, and that's what we see happening. He actually summons this guy and says, bring him before me. There's no possible way this guy can pay him back, but man, look, what, what is, what's going on here? Let's have a look at it, verse 23. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him. Uh, The language there could infer that he's brought forcefully or even dragged before the king. So he's brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Just hear that as billions. I, I, I can't say billions and trillions without thinking of someone. Billions and trillions are just like annoying. To get the point, right? Ten, when you hear that, think, yeah, anyway. Think millions, think an unpayable debt, right? So 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. This bloke's in a dire situation. Would you agree? Uh, You may have experienced credit card debt or perhaps a level of bankruptcy, but they're not going to lock you up for it or enslave your wife and kids. Yet in the Greco-Roman world, the practice of enslaving individuals on account of unpaid debts wasn't uncommon. We even get examples of this in the Old Testament where the whole family cops it simply because of dad's financial fiasco. Such is the case here. This servant, this guy is about to lose everything and some. Put yourself in his shoes. What would you do? What would you say? Well, the only thing left to do, drop to your knees and plea for pardon, which is precisely what he does. But here's the thing we cannot miss. Notice how the king's heart, this master's heart, goes out to this bloke. And not only goes out to him, but cancels this enormous debt. This is where the the story of the parable takes a surprising turn. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. That's ridiculous. He could never do that. Is he a fool or does he he believe his master to be a fool? Right? I'll pay you everything. Really? How? Right? But notice, notice the king's response. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master has mercy on this servant, releases him and forgives this incalculable debt. Such an act reveals the king's enormous grace, does it not? You know, this portrait of a king and his servants should trigger in our minds the image of God and his people. You see, in the parable, God is the king. And when the disciples heard Jesus talking, he says, and there's a king, there's a master, they they either thought two things. Likely, if they're thinking through a uh, Judaistic worldview, they'd think, well, God's the ultimate king, but they might have an image of Gentiles because Gentiles had kings. But, but in their worldview, there's one king, right? God Almighty. And so the image here, and Jesus actually explains at the end that the whole, he gives us, a, I, I won't, you know, I won't spoil it, but at the end, he actually gives us a little tailpiece to help us understand this whole parable. And we have to know that, that God actually in this parable 
God is the king. It may not be a perfect one-to-one correspondence, but God is pictured as the king, and we are this slave who owes these debts. And what Jesus is pointing out is that we have sinned against the Lord repeatedly. We have disobeyed Him regularly. I mean, just take the two greatest commands. Love God, love neighbor. We never fill, we've never fulfilled either one of these commands, not once, not even for a moment. We are constantly failing to love our neighbor as ourself. We are constantly failing to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our strengths. We've never done it. It's never happened. Plus, there are several passive sins that we commit. Our attitudes of pride, envy, lust, anger, and hatred, these are all passive sins that occur in our hearts and our minds all the time. Not to mention all the active transgressions that we commit. So let's do some math here. Because the passage, after all, is about numbers and debt, right? So let's roll with that and do some honest soul searching. How many times a day do you reckon you sin against God? How many times a day? Let's just be conservative and say three. And if you're like, well, I don't do it that, oh, well, yeah. Probably the best of us is, is, is at, you know, at, on our best day is going to be more than three. But let's, you're with me just for argument's sake, let's just say that you commit three sins a day. Think of yourself as someone who commits three sins a day. You with me? Now, how many is that in a year? Let, let's be conservative by rounding that number down to just say a thousand. Okay? Now, let's say you live to 70 years old. How many sins does that mean you've committed over a lifetime? What debt level are you at even over a modest lifetime? 70,000 transgressions against a holy God. Your debt, dear friend, is vast. It is absolutely unpayable because it is owed to God who says this, if you keep the whole law, listen, and you stumble at one point, you're a lawbreaker. You're guilty. If you keep the whole law and stumble at just one little point, you're guilty. This is a God who says, the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. When we add up all the things we have done to fall short of His infinitely perfect and holy standards, when we come to the end and stand before God Almighty, we present to Him a massive debt of sin. Our sins are enormous in God's holy eyes, like a billion-dollar debt, if not worse. And there is no way in the world we could ever repay. Ever. So what can we do? What can you do? What can you say? You are guilty. And so am I. The only thing that we can do, like this servant, is throw ourselves on our knees and plea for pardon. 
And listen, if you do, God will not hold one of your sins against you. Not one. Sins you remember that you wish you'd never done. The sins that dog you in the night. The sins that the devil cast up against you again and again and accuses you with. Those sins are gone as far as God is concerned. Because Jesus bore all your sins. Not just the okay ones, the acceptable ones, not just the ones that you can forgive yourself for, not just the ones that other people might be able to forgive you for, not just the ones which, generally speaking, are are so common that we all, you know, let one another off the hook for them. No, he forgave the ones you dare not even mention, and if we mentioned out loud, we would shudder. He forgave all your sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103. That's a promise to those who are currently trusting in Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. But let me ask you something. That's not everybody in here. If you're here, and you're not a Christian. How do you think your debt will be repaid? How, how do you think you're going to balance the scales? If God is holy and you are not, and you stand before a holy God, what hope could you possibly have? Psalm 130 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you hear the word though? In Christ. You stand before God in yourself, on your own two feet as it were, you are condemned. But what hope do you have? Because you grew up in a Christian home? Because you think you've been able to outwit God somehow? What hope do you have? Oh, friend, turn to Jesus. Don't wait another day. You will stand before him and be judged. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. You see, the spiritual debt that God has forgiven us from is so gigantic that any refusal on our part to forgive others is ludicrous in comparison. And that's exactly leading us to our second point. Flouted forgiveness. Let's pick up again. Coming back to the servant. Look at this flouted forgiveness. He owed this astronomical debt, right? Imagine the weight lifted off his shoulders. Not only is this enormous debt been wiped clean, but he's a free man. Would you have a skip in your step? You should. So what next? Where, where, is, he, is he off to tell people about the, the master, the king, and how great he is and gracious he is? Well, let's, let, let's pick up here. This same guy goes out, verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now this is about it's not nothing, 
but it's about four months worth of work. So he does owe him that. But when you compare, say, like four months to, like I said, like hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, it's comparatively small, right? There's actually no comparison. And, and what does he do? I want you to look carefully. This becomes an all too familiar scenario, even the way that the servant asks for pardon. Like we can hear it and go, well, that sounds quite familiar. Notice, but when the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will repay you. It's Jones. Strangely familiar, does it not? It's nearly the same words the servant used moments earlier when he pleaded his case before the king. We hear the similarity, but evidently he doesn't. So he tosses his fellow servant into a debtor's prison. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Ironically, the wicked servant asked for and benefited from mercy and forgiveness, yet the irony is he refuses to give it in return, which is spurning the judge. Does that make sense? The king. The contrast between the king and this wicked servant couldn't be more opposite, and that's the point. Now, does this injustice upset you a bit? Does it kind of fire you up when you look at it? I mean, just, who does this guy think he is, right? I mean, not only in, in that culture, you don't just go choke someone. This is an MMA match or something like that. Like, he, he's humiliating this guy, like, pay me what you owe. And the guy says, please, please. And he goes, go to prison. Now, I think Jesus tells this to kind of, kind of pull on our heartstrings and we're both, we feel bad for this other servant and at the same time, we're infuriated with this, this wicked servant. I mean, that's, when the other slaves see this, that's exactly what they do. They're quite incensed. They actually run back to their master a and they've seen it all and they go to him and tell him in no uncertain terms what has happened and this sets the stage for our final scene about forfeited forgiveness. Look in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. What a frightening scene that is. The jailers there could also be translated the torturers. This is an image of hell. And the irony is, do you notice the word there, until he should pay all his debt? When's that going to happen? Ancient jailers didn't allow their inmates to earn money. Uh, despite the fact that it's unrepayable, 
So when's that going to happen? Like, never. Now, part of you, as you read that, you kind of think, good. Serves this bloke right. Beware. Because the punchline comes in verse 35. It's kind of like, you know when David sins against Bathsheba? Terrible, awful thing. And he, you know, even kills her husband. You know the story? And kind of goes, right, I think we're done now. And Nathan the prophet comes to him, says, hey, David, there was this, this really rich bloke, and he had all, you know, stacks and stacks of sheep and animals. And, and then there's this poor guy, and he had just one, and he used to nurture this little lamb and, and kind of, you know, rub its head and da-da-da. And one day the, the rich bloke was hungry, so he came and ripped it out of his hands. And, you know, and David goes, oh, that man deserves to die. And the prophet turns and says to him, you're the man. You're who I'm talking about. And I think Jesus intentionally triggers our emotions here. I think Matthew crafted this beautifully to where we're kind of going, good, that bloke gets what he deserves. And then in verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. If we lack compassion and harbor vengeance in our hearts, rather than being ready to forgive, we will forfeit any forgiveness that has been given to us. I mean, just in case you have any doubts about that, look again. Jesus gives us a key to in the interpreting this parable in this last verse, and my heavenly Father will treat you in the same way unless every one of you forgives your brother or sister from your heart. Notice the, the heart language. This reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you commit lust in your heart, if you have anger in your heart, it's about the real you. Because we can fake forgiveness. Say you're sorry. We've learned that as kids. Sorry. You're not really sorry, are you? We can kind of put on a show, but the Lord looks directly into your heart and says, unless, his words, unless you forgive your brother and sister, you're going to be just like this wicked servant. Cast away. You understand? That's the why for forgiving others. It's rooted in the fact that we have been the recipients of extraordinary mercy and compassion. We are all debtors who cannot pay their debts to God, yet the Lord has been gracious enough to grant us forgiveness in His Son, Jesus Christ. So why should you forgive? Simply because God has forgiven you. I mean, this parable underscores the greatness of the Lord's mercy, which cancels our incalculable debts. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Let's pray.
Lord, there's so much more that could be said in this text, and we pray that we would sit on these truths now. We pray that you would enable us by your Spirit to forgive those that have wronged us, that have sinned against us. Lord, we don't want to be the wicked servant. Grant us now the grace to repent of our unforgiving hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.